Welcome to the Bethel Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Chris Valentin. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit iBethel.org. Yeah, this morning I'm doing something that is quite different for me. Uh, it, may not, it may not be different for you, but it is for me. Um, I, I did a whole series on empowering women. How many of you were a part of any part of that? I did five weeks on empowering women. And uh, I wrote a book, uh, this book right here called Fashion to Reign, um, Empowering Women to Fulfill Their Divine Destiny. If you haven't read that, it's a great book. Also, Danny Silk wrote a great book called Powerful and Free, Confronting the Glass Ceiling for Women in the Church. These are both really good books. You can find them in the uh, bookstore. And what I'm going to share with you t- this morning is uh, actually just a part of, I'm going to share just a part of one chapter in this book. Um, but I, I had the privilege of doing a women's conference in Australia uh, last month, I think it was, a month and a half ago. And um, this is my first women's conference ever. <laughs> they invite, there was tons of estrogen in the room, baby. I'll tell you what, <laughs> people were seeing things. I'll tell you, Holy Spirit loves women. And uh, yeah, in fact... Yeah, and Solomon said, he who finds a wife finds favor with God. I'm like, hey, you want to have favor with God? Get married. You know what I mean? It's just <laughs> nothing else works. Just get married. It'll, it'll work out for you, man. And so um, at the conference, I, they, I had five sessions at the conference. I was the main speaker. There were seven other speakers. So you can imagine, we, it was over four days. So you can imagine how many sessions there were a day. And uh, this really interesting thing happened, which I've never had happen in, in my life in a conference. Um, when, I, when I got done speaking, the next person, you know, session was up, uh, and they would, and uh, all the other speakers were women, except for me, and they would come back to my seat and go, I, I think you're supposed to take my session. And they kept giving me their sessions. Well, I ended up with nine sessions <laughs> in this conference. So, um, so when I did my series here, the, the five weeks I did here, I, um, I did not address Paul's um, three exhortations about the restrictions on women. Do you know, probably know them, the ladies know them by heart, like they've been, they memorized them by accident, right? And, um, and so I've never actually taught publicly before uh, the Australian event, I never uh, taught publicly um, about the, the three uh, restrictive verses uh, about women. And so um, because I had so many sessions, and the facts are I was running out of things to do, I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll try this. And the reason I don't, you know, the reason I, I don't do it is, is it's, it's a real kind of, um, it's very difficult to do in a, in a large setting because it's complicated. And if you, do, if you don't do it very well, then all the people who don't, who you know, believe that women should be restricted, go, wow, he didn't mention this and this and this and this and this and this. And, this. and you're like, well, that's a four-hour message right there, and it's in the book. And if you uh, do it really well, it takes way too long. And not only that, but it's, you'll see it's pretty complex. So, um, so I left it out. Well, I, in this women's conference, I, they gave me an hour and a half to do that session, and I just started talking about the Greek and the culture and all, the, all those things, and um, again, it wasn't an emotional session at all. Like, you know, sometimes you preachers move people to an emotional response. I was just teaching, like line upon line. And in my head, I thought, this has to be the most boring session I probably have done in years. 
Well, when I get about halfway through the session, about 35, 40 minutes into the session, women in, in the conference are, start weeping. And it gets so loud, it's hard to teach. One woman gets up screaming, runs out of the conference into the hallway, and she's in the conference scree- in the hallway screaming. And I'm thinking, I don't know what happened you know, to her. Well, the woman who put the conference on has been a pastor for 40 years. She's been a senior, the senior pastor of the church that the conference was held in. And she's um, in, her, in her 70s, very funny lady, and just, she's the one who invited me. And we, after that session, we went into the green room and we were talking, and with tears in her eyes, she said, I have been a pastor for 40 years, a senior pastor for 40 years. I planted this church. She's the head of Cheon's network for all of Australia. And she said to me, I've always had this thing in the back of my mind that I'm probably doing something wrong because of those verses. And they have plagued me my entire Christian life. Until this day, I've never found, felt, felt free. And I'm teaching line upon line thinking, this is so boring. And it was so quiet in there, as you can imagine. And so I decided to give it a try on Sunday morning. You know, just, I just have to tell you that I tried first service, and I have 26 pages of notes, and I got through page six. And it was like the movie, you know, when we used to have old video and the, and the tape would break. It felt like we just crashed right there. And I'm like, all right, well, we'll come back another session and we'll try it again. So um, here we go. Um, no, inappropriate screaming. <laughs> Usher that lady out. <laughs> so let's pray real quickly. Holy Spirit, we thank you for what you're doing. And we pray for a spirit of revelation to be on the roof. The, they would get this message. Amen. Okay, so for those of you that haven't heard any of the five previous messages that I've shared, I'm going to have to give you a five-minute overview or the rest of what I have to share probably isn't going to make a lot of sense to you. So um, I'm, for those of you who've heard before, and knowing I have a very little time, I'm, I'm sorry, but I think I tried it without that. I just don't think it's going to work. So in between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew is what um, a lot of theologians call 400 years of silence. The Catholics don't quite agree, but the, that's not really the point anyway. So between Matthew, I'm sorry, between Malachi and Matthew is 400 years. In those 400 years... When, um, when Jesus walked the earth, not those 400 years, Jesus is always walking the earth, but before Jesus walked the earth, a religion developed called Judaism. Now, I, when I wrote the, the book, Fashion to Rain, I, um, in the middle of writing the book, my publisher called and said, hey, you know this book, we, you, we gave you a contract for 40,000 words? I said, yeah. They said, well, we think it should be 75,000 words. Can you please double the length of the book? Only one problem, I was at 30,000 words and out of things to say. So I ended up with 400 hours of research. And I'm so glad that they did that and that they asked me to lengthen the book because I feel like now it was the Lord. And it opened up a world, not just for women, but for the Gospels. And here's what I learned. It might be helpful to you if you haven't heard this before. In those 400 years, a religion developed called Judaism. Now, I thought Judaism, you know, we've all heard Judaism, I thought Judaism was kind of a word 
for the Old, Old Testament religion, but it actually wasn't. You know, the, when Jesus walked the earth, he did not walk the earth in what we would call Mosaic law. For example, when, there is no Pharisees in the Old Testament. Did you notice you can read the whole Old Testament and not read the word Pharisee? You can read the whole Old Testament and not read the word Sadducee? And you'll notice that the scribes in the days of Jesus had a completely different role than the scribes in the Old Testament. And what I'm getting at is this. Sadducees, Pharisees, and this, now the scribes, they were the leaders of developing this religion that came out of the law of Moses. It was developed out of the law of Moses, but they added a bunch more rules and it became a completely separate religion. So when Jesus was alive in first century, he was not alive in first century Mosaic law. He was alive in a religion called Judaism. Are you with me? Now, just so you, you know, a little, just to give you an idea, there was in the Old Testament, if you took all the commandments of the Old Testament, you know, the Ten Commandments plus all the Levitical law and the laws around eating, the laws around sexuality, the laws around marriage, all of those laws, if you took them all together, there was 252 of them. When Jesus walked the earth, the, the Judaism, in Judaism, there was 613 laws. 613. Now, here, this will get you. A hundred, almost a hundred of those laws were written against women. Pharisees hated women. So when Jesus came to a set to oppress free, guess who the most oppressed people group were on the planet in Judaism? Women. Okay, so far that's a good word. I know you're listening. So I want to read you just a little bit about um, uh, Judaism. And I want to tell you this, that when, when, Jesus, uh, when Jesus walked the earth and when the Bible, the New Testament was written, there was basically three audiences. There was Jews, as you would well know. There was Romans, as you would have guessed, because the Jews were under Roman rule. And there was the Greeks. So there was the Jews, there was the Romans, and there, the, and there was Greeks. So when Paul and Peter and, uh, and John, when they wrote the epistles, like, you know, after the gospels, the epistles, they wrote to three different people groups. And what you're going you're gonna to notice something right away as soon as I share one more piece with you. Let me just read you a little bit about Judaism. Um, in the first century Israel, there was no people group more oppressed than women. They were considered second-class citizens akin to slaves. They had virtually no rights, no respect, and they had no voice. They were the property of men, and literally they were literally the property of men like you would buy a house. They were, not, they were allowed little or no formal education. If a family had young boys and girls, the boys would go off to school to be educated while the girls stayed home with their mother. Like the women of Afghanistan, Jewish women were forbidden to speak to men in public and were required to veil their faces whenever they left their homes. If a woman was caught unveiled in public, it was grounds for divorce. They kept house, took care of their children, and served at the will of their husbands. If a man came over the house for dinner, the women had to eat in another room. Their fathers arranged most of their marriages, so they rarely married the man of their dreams. The, the best they could hope for is that someone would treat them better than their fathers. To make matters worse, um, polygamy was legal for men, not for women, so most women shared their husbands with other wives. If their husbands got tired of them, for most any reason, they divorced them, discarding them like used rags. Jewish women couldn't vote. In fact, they had no political influence whatsoever. A woman could not even be a witness in a court trial. 
Judaism was stricter than the Old Testament with respect to women. Women were relegated to the outer court of the synagogue. The synagogue had four levels, and, the, and women could only go to the outer court. They couldn't come into the synagogue. Um, and, uh, and they were not allowed to read the scriptures, the Torah. They weren't allowed to read the Torah. In fact, the most famous first century rabbi named Elzer said, I'd rather burn the Torah than, read it to, than teach it to a woman. They weren't even allowed to, uh, to recite the morning prayer or the prayers at meals. Now, um, I told you that women were, that there was three groups of people that Paul um, actually wrote to and that, that the disciples, the apostles wrote to. So we had the Jews and we just talked to you about what Jewish life was like for women. And then we had the Romans. Now, the Romans were a little less restrictive. Isn't it interesting that when you get out of, the, the more you get out of religion, the more freedom you have, which is kind of weird. So the, the Romans allowed women, if, they, if their husbands gave them permission, they could actually work outside the home, and in certain cities, Roman cities, they could actually own property. So they were a little less oppressed than, than, uh, than Jewish women. Now, but, and here's, where, here's the real kind of kicker. If you were Greek, the Greeks adored women. As a matter of fact, they thought that women were more powerful than men, and the Greeks held to the religion of polytheism, or if you will, Greek mythology. And so they, well, Romans oppressed women, Jews really oppressed women, Greeks made gods out of them. Are you with me? And the reason why, and I'll, 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 I won't you know, be graphic here, but the reason why the Greeks, the, the whole thought behind Greek mythology and women being more powerful is because the sex drive of a man was much greater than a woman. So the Greeks thought women are more powerful because they have something that a man wants and she has control over whether he gets it or not. <laughs> I won't say anything else about that especially since we're streaming. And so they made gods out of women. Now, the interesting thing for us here is that, first of all, it's important to remember that Paul the Apostle, who we're about to talk about his book, the Corinthian book, the book of Corinthians, he was formerly a Pharisee. In fact, he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, which means that he would have been in Judaism, right? And he would have been a former oppressor of women. Got me? Okay. And, uh, and as far as the background of, of um, Paul's writings, Paul wrote to nine geographic locations and restricted women in three of them. Now, here, this is interesting. He restricted women, or supposedly restricted women. We'll talk about that in a minute. He, he seemed to restrict, restrict women in Corinth, Ephesus, and in the island of Creed. Do you have any idea what they have in common? Corinth, Corinthians, and the island of Crete is the only three cities in which Paul wrote letters and said anything at all about women having any different role than men. Do you, know, you, know, do you have any idea what was different about those three cities? Uh, if you guessed they were Greek, you were right. Every one of those cities were Greek, and not only were they Greek, but here's a very interesting point, is that those three cities happened to have goddesses instead of gods as their chief leader of their city. Are you with me? 
In other words, you understand that in Greek mythology, you had gods and goddesses, right? But the goddesses were more important than the gods. In other words, goddesses were, had a higher level, if you will, of authority than gods did, because I just told you why, right? And in those three cities, the city of Corinth had uh, uh, worshipped Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love. Ephesus worshipped um, Artemis or Diana, which uh, she was the god of fertility. And, uh, and the Cretans worshipped the goddess of Dikithia. I think it's something like that. I probably pronounced them all wrong. But the point is, is that the, the, the god of, that, of those cities was actually a woman, a goddess. So when Paul writes to those three cities alone, those are the only three cities in which Paul says anything at all about the difference between men and women in leadership. Isn't that interesting? So when he speaks to the Romans, when he speaks to the Jews, he says nothing about women. In fact, when he speaks to the the Romans, he says there is no male or female in Christ. Are you with me? Are 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 you getting where I'm going? Okay, now the other thing that's kind of important to know is that no first century church would have had what we call the New Testament. In other words, no no church would have had all the letters that that we call now the New Testament. In fact, most of the New Testament was written 30 to 70 years after Christ. So no one church would have had all the letters. Now what's probably just as important to know is that Paul wrote letters to specific churches, and he told the, 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 uh, the receiver of the letter who to actually read this letter to. I'll give you some examples, and you may know where I'm going already. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes in verse 1 and 2, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ um, by the will of God to Sosius our brother to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Okay, he says, listen, I'm writing to you and to the churches at Corinth. In Galatians, Paul writes, I'm, uh, Paul the apostle, to all the brethren and to the churches that are all through Galatia. In Colossians, he writes this. This is interesting. When, when this letter, this is uh, Colossians 4.16, if you're taking notes. When Paul writes Colossians, he writes, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the churches of Laodicea, and for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. This is very interesting. Paul said, okay, I've written to you Colossians, but this letter I wrote to you, it's actually relevant to Laodiceans too. And by the way, I wrote them a letter that I want you to read. Are you with me? Are you bored? Okay. To Philippians, he writes this, Paul and Timothy and bondservants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ who are in Philippi, listen to this, including the overseers and deacons. So he's writing to the Philippians, and if you'll notice, if you've read the book of Philippians, you know it has some corrections in it about humility and so forth. He says to the Philippians, I'm writing to the saints, but I'm also writing to the elders and the deacons. Are you with me? So in that case, he says, listen, you guys that are opening this letter, you're probably elders. I'm talking to you too. This isn't just for the saints. I'm talking to the elders and the overseers. And it goes on like that in Thessalonica. He writes the same thing in Titus. He writes to Titus, I left you in creed that you might set in order what remains and, um, and appoint elders in every city which I've directed you. So here's the point. You cannot relate to the book of Corinthians as an example. Uh, in the New Testament, 
the way that an Old Testament believer would have related to, let's say, the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Numbers. Because the Old Testament, like the book of Leviticus, would be equal to the Constitution of the United States. That book was written as the foundation of how all the Israelites would live. Are you with me? But the book of Corinthians was specifically written to the Corinthians to address specific issues. The book of Colossians was written to a specific group of people to address certain issues. So you cannot relate to the book of Corinthians the way you would relate as an Old Testament guy as you would relate to uh, uh, the book of Leviticus. Let me say that again. As a New Testament person, I cannot relate to the epistles the way the Old Testament people would have related to the law of Moses and the five books of the law of Moses. Because when one was written to a whole people group and, was, and the application was broad, to, to the, but in the New Testament, the application is narrow and it's actually written specifically to a certain people group and in some cases to even describes who in the church should actually read this letter. Got me? Okay, so what happens when you what happens when you superimpose God's situational counsel over universal circumstances is that it's often doesn't you often don't come to a redemptive solution. Let me say it again. You cannot superimpose God's situational counsel over universal circumstances and have it be redemptive in every situation. So what we learn from the epistles, the epistles teaches us how God thinks. But the only time you would apply the specific paragraph, if you will, the specific verse to your specific situation is if you had the same context as it was written in. Does that make sense? So, you know, when people say, I believe the Bible, I'd say, you believe the Bible, but you actually, you filter the Bible through your context. Go, no, I don't. Okay, let me just ask you a question. If your son had a problem with pornography and he went to see the pastor and he came back with one eye gouged out and his left hand cut off, would you say he got great counsel? No. Well, that's what Jesus said to do. So we all process... Listen, I don't care who you are. I believe the Bible. Yes, you believe the Bible, but you put it in a context. So if your 15-year-old son came back with one eye missing and his hand cut off, because Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. And he came back with one eye and with one hand gone, you would probably call the police. Because you understand that there's a context to Jesus' words, and you automatically put the context in there, whether you think you are or not. Are you with me? Okay, so, is it, does it make sense to you, and I'm just giving you an overview before we get into Corinthians. Does it make sense to you that in the Old Testament, you remember that the, that the curse over the woman was that, you will have pain in childbirth, remember this, and your husband will rule over you. That was the curse over in, in the Old Testament. Got me? And by the way, it's the word husband will rule over you, not man will rule over woman. And I should stop and say this, I didn't say it in first service. In the, in the Hebrew language, which the Old Testament is written in, the word for woman and the word for wife are different. 
and the word for man and the word for husband are different. So we know for sure that the curse over the woman was your husband will rule over you, not man will rule over woman because it's a different Hebrew word. Are you with me? You have a little, it's more complicated when you get to the New Testament because the New Testament's written in Greek and the Greek word for man and the Greek word for husband are the same. And the Greek word for woman and the Greek word for wife are the same. So you have to decide whether he's talking to men or husbands and women or wives in the New Testament. But you don't have to make that decision in the Old Testament. So my point is this. Does it make sense in the Old Testament that women, no, wives had to submit to their husbands and the husband ruled the wife, not man ruled woman, okay? In the Old Testament, we had queens, we had judges, and we had prophetesses who were all women. And not only that, but we celebrated them. So does it make sense that after the cross, when Jesus broke the curse in the garden, after the cross, does it make sense that a woman couldn't be an elder of a church of 50 people, but she could be a queen of a nation? I mean, doesn't that just like, doesn't something just rise up and you go, wait, wait a second now. I don't want to rationalize the Bible, but something seems wrong. And my question is, when Jesus died on the cross and he died to break the curse, when do women get free? That's my question. Because in the Old Testament, it was husbands that ruled their wives, not men that ruled women. And the the fruit of that is that they could literally lead countries, be prophetesses and judges. So now we will attempt the impossible. We're going to read some of the hard passages that Paul wrote. And we, I, in, in the first service, I got only through one of the three. So we'll try to do a, a better job if we can. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to tell you a little bit about the book of Corinthians in case you don't know this. Of course, I've already said this is a Greek city with a Greek goddess who had, who had temple prostitutes, this, especially in Corinth. They were very proud of their temple prostitutes. Now, when you and I think of a prostitute, we think of like a low-life woman who's sleeping with men for money. So that's kind of our mentality. You need to break that mentality when you think of temple prostitutes coming out of Greek mythology. Because remember, women were more powerful than men. So the, the women prostitutes were also priests. Are you with me? So if you had a chance... Like, if this woman actually gave herself to you, it was like being anointed by Bill Johnson and Randy Clark at the same time. And add Heidi Baker in there, too. It, was, it wasn't a sex act as much as it was an act of anointing, and it wasn't thought of as dirty or shameful. It was thought of as the highest pinnacle of Greek mythology. So these women weren't demeaned, they were elevated. They were the most important women in the city. Are you getting it? And Corinth was one of the trade cities where where there was a temple, the goddess temple, and they had temple prostitutes there. So in in verse chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, the... um, 
Paul says this. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch. Uh, is it good? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Let me stop right here and say this. Here's the challenge we have with the book of Corinthians. The book of Corinthians, as you just heard, Paul is answering questions the Corinthians are asking. In this case, they asked, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? What's happened with the Corinthians is that they came out of Greek mythology and they react. They're like, okay, we elevated women, so now we're going to oppress them. Are you with me? So they're saying, should we not touch a woman? Because, you know, in Greek mythology, we had um, uh, the act of marriage with them. And, and, um, and that was considered the pinnacle of the temple, so to speak. And is so, should we not touch them now? So they're reacting to the, to the religion they came out of. You get this? And so, but here's the challenge with the book of Corinthians. Paul, in the first seven chapters, often will repeat the question and then tell you his answer. The problem is, is that by the time we get to the eighth chapter, he stops repeating the question. So you don't know what the question is, or if he's answering a question, or if part of that chapter is actually the question. Because he doesn't phrase it like, well, you wrote previously, are you following me? Which makes the letter a little complicated. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, here we go, verse 1. Now concerning the things about what you wrote, is it, good, it is good for a man to not touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, Get this, and each woman is to have her own husband. You have to remember, this is a former Pharisee who had no value for women, writing this paragraph. If you understood that, you'd probably fall over in your seat right now and pass out in a trance, <laughs> especially when I'm about to read you. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. Uh, by the way, if you're not... If you don't know what he's talking about, he's talking about the act of marriage. Okay? The wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Now, if you knew Paul and where he came from, you would think he'd put a period right there. A wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. But listen to the next verse. The wife does not... Uh, and likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Did you get that? A woman went from being a possession to having the ability to own her husband. And a Pharisee wrote that. Fall down and say something, please. <laughs> this, this is a shock. A Pharisee just wrote, husbands, you don't own your body. Your wife does. That's a crazy... I know. Too late, too late, too late. <laughs> Verse 5. Stop depriving one another except for agreement. For a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan would not tempt you. Verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now listen, this is all about husband and wife, you know, and, and can you leave and can you get divorced and, you know, should we have women in, you know, somebody wrote me uh, after the session said, well, how about women in dangerous situations and, you know, are we saying there can never be a divorce or there shouldn't be? Listen, that's not the subject I'm talking about today. And, and I probably should do a teaching on divorce 
Because having people in situations where husband beats wife and children like regularly is a bad plan. If Tarzan wants to act like an ape, he needs to stay in the jungle. Okay? And, uh, and Jane can act like an ape too, and she needs to stay in the jungle. So let's just, let's just be fair, ladies, and say it both ways. But so for the sake of time, that's not our subject today, so I will not address that. To the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that a wife should not leave her husband. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. You have to remember there's no such thing as women divorcing men in Judaism. A woman could not divorce a man in Judaism, but a man could divorce a woman. Paul has totally left that behind and says if she has to leave, then let her remain unmarried. You understand this is, from our perspective, restrictive. From their perspective, incredibly releasing. Are you with me? To, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, I, as your brother, um, that, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. There's another, whoo, here we go. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, if he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. She must not send her husband away. Did you get that? You understand how far we've come in 30 years from Christ to Corinthians, 30 years. She does not send her husband away. She's a powerful woman by now. Are you with me? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Whoa, 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 back up, what? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, how will your children be how are your uh, otherwise? I'm sorry. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. If an unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother, uh, the brother or sister, is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? <laughs> this is like incredible. You 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 have to do 400 hours of research to actually fall down on the podium. This guy just said, wives, you might be saving your husband. And by the way, if you can stay with him, you're sanctifying him and you're making your whole family holy, wives. That is an amazing statement. Okay, what do we learn from this? The first thing we learn is this, is that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians that he was writing to men and women. Did you see that there were instructions for men and there was instruction for women? Did you get that? Okay, so some people say, well, the letter of Corinthians was written to just to men. Now I'll tell you why they say that. Because we're going to fast forward, we're going to miss chapter 11 for uh, a minute. I'll see if we have time to do it later. But in chapter 14, Paul writes, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in tongues does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. The one who speaks in tongues edifies himself. The one who prophesies edifies the church. Now listen to this. Now I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. We'll just stop right there because for our uh, subject, that's enough. I wish you all, I wish you all. Now, the reason why this is important is because 
when people read this letter as a letter to men, then they go, I wish all you men prophesied. But actually he says, all y'all. Because he's included the women. And he doesn't make an exception here. And you'll notice that he does make exceptions throughout the book. And yet he says, you can all prophesy. And it goes on in uh, verse 26 uh, of chapter 14. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble together, each one has a psalm, has a teaching. What? Has a what? Who? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that you may all learn and all be exhorted. Now, how many of you know that's all y'all? How do we know that? Because Paul is clearly writing to men and women because he said to wives and he said things to husbands and so we have to ascertain that Paul was writing to all y'all and not just to men. What did he say to all y'all? He said you can all prophesy. What else did he say? You can come with a teaching, you can come with a psalm, you can come with a hymn. Who did he say that to? Everybody. Are you with me? Okay, now here's the challenge. The most restrictive verse in the entire Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are, sub but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? Verse 37, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I wrote to you are the Lord's command. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, there's two schools of thought, and I'm going to tell you about the first one. You've probably heard it if you've been in church for very long, and if they let women talk when they go th come through the doors, they have a reason for that. They, they think this is contextual. And here's what they think the context is. Men sat on one side of the room, and women sat on the other side. And they thought, you know, during the teaching, that women would actually shout questions to their husband on the other side of the room. And there was this chaos. And therefore, Paul said, women, you're the ones causing the trouble. So in church, be quiet. Don't talk at all. And so that's one way to solve the issue. Now, it is true that women sat on one side and men sat on the other. We know that, that through tradition, that that is traditionally true, that men and women did not sit on the same side of the church, on the same side of the room. Here's the, here's the struggle with that. First of all, we're not talking to the Hebrews who would have understood Old Testament law. Are you with me? In other words, if we were talking to Jews, it would make sense that men knew things that women didn't because men were taught the Torah and the women weren't. Are you with me? We're talking to the Corinthians who were polytheists. They, they, they all came out of Greek mythology, so the men don't know any more than the women do. Secondly, if this verse, if Paul was saying to them, you have to ask, listen, wives, ask your husbands at home, what do you do with the fact that Paul said it's better to not marry so all the women who have no husbands have no one to ask? And it goes on. Are you, now you're listening, I can tell, or you're totally bored. And I'll just take that you're listening. 
The other way to answer this question is with this, would you put that um, shot on the screen up, please? The other way to read this question, the other way to read this is as a question. In other words, women are to keep silent in the churches. This is the one, this is a way that some theologians believe this should be read. Women are to be silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Okay, after that verse, there's this little thing, that, that, that explicit of disassociation. Do you see that? That little N, that thing that looks like an N? It's at the end of this verse. The, the closest, there is, no, there is no perfect translation for it in English, which is why a whole, but no translator translates it. But it means, what? No way. Nonsense. It can't be. It's at the end of this. Are you with me? So it would read like this. The women are to keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. They're to subject themselves, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. What? No way. No way. And then Paul answers with this. Was it from you the word of God first came forth, or has it come forth to you only? And he goes on to say, I'm sorry. It goes on to say, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's command. But if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Verse 36, the previous verse. Was it from you the word of God came first, uh, came forth, or has it come only to you? In other words, in between verse 35 and 36, there's that little line that goes, what? No way. What are you saying? And then Paul's answer. Did the word of God just come from you? Or did it just come to you? Listen, what I'm sharing with you is the Lord's command. If anybody does not recognize this, they think they're spiritual and they don't recognize this, they're not recognized. Now, how many of you know that makes sense? Now, I'll tell you why it makes sense. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, we have six minutes. We will not do this justice. In 1 Corinthians 11, we, we're not going to take the time to read through it, so I'm going to explain it to you. Paul says that Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of every woman. Oh, I know why I missed it. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of every woman. Now, here's, here's a problem. The word woman and the word wife are the same, right? The word in the Greek. The word man and the word husband are the same in the Greek. So there's two ways to read that passage. If you read it, God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. You have a more restrictive gospel than the curse. Because the curse put women, put wives under husbands, but did not put men over women. So if you read that verse as man 
is head of wife, then you have a more restrictive gospel than they had before the fall. Or after the fall, I should say. Are you, are you following where I'm going? 16, there's 43 versions that are really accessible of the New Testament. 16 of those versions translate that woman, man. The, all the other versions translate it wife, man, husband, wife. Are you with me? Okay, so then it goes on to say if a wife has her head covered, a wife needs to have her head covered while she's praying or prophesying for the sake of the angels. Got me? Now, there's so much to say that we're not going to be able to say in four minutes. But here's the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 11. As long as women are in right order, then they can pray and they can prophesy. Are you with me? Follow me. Okay, let's just, let's just see if we can do the Corinthian road, because they have the Roman road, so we can do the Corinthian road. The Corinthian thought. Let's just, let's just gain momentum to this verse. In 1 Corinthians 7, a man does not own his own body, but his wife does, and vice versa, but we're talking about the opposite right now, right? Okay, in 1 Corinthians 11, a woman has to be in right alignment with her husband, but when she is, she can pray and she can prophesy. Are you with me? In 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, we're told you can all prophesy. And by the way, you can all teach. You can all have a psalm. You can all have a hymn. You can all have ministry. All of y'all. Got me? But at the end of 1 Corinthians 14, he says, women shouldn't speak in church and just as the law says. Well, there's, well, there's quite a few problems with that. First of all, you can read the whole entire law and there's not one place in the Old Testament law that says that women can't speak. So whoever wrote that doesn't know the law. I would propose to you that can't be the words of the Apostle Paul because he's an expert in the law. You with me? Secondly, it does not make sense that for 14 chapters, Paul says women are equal. Guys, get a life. Women are equal. They have equal gifts. They can equally access God. They can, have, they can move in power. And by the way, they can teach and have hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Women can do that. And it doesn't make sense that he'd say all that and say, well, women can't speak in church. I mean, it's opposite of everything else he said for 14 chapters. So my, there's a couple ways to read this, but my, the old idea that men are, women are shouting to ask men questions, it doesn't make sense because men, these men are polytheists. They don't know a thing about Judaism. They don't know a thing about the Old Testament. They wouldn't have answers. They would shout back, I don't know. <laughs> so that doesn't make sense. To me. And then we have the imperative that I showed you up on the screen that, Paul, that right after that, that sentence, it says it has that imperative like, no way, ha, that's nonsense, that's crazy, that, how could that be true? And by the way, did the word of God first come to you? Did it only come to you? Did it only come through you? That makes sense. And that's a good word right there. <laughs> and we have one minute. 
And we have two more verses we haven't talked about. So I will just say this. Jesus loves you. <laughs> and if you're a woman, if you got to hear the rest of the verses, you're free. You know when Paul says that women, in, to, in 1 Timothy 2, when women will be saved through childbirth? Want me just to give you one little? Well, remember, there, in Paul's writing to Timothy, who's the senior leader at where? Ephesus, who the goddess is Diana, who's the multi-breasted one, the goddess of fertility, and she's famous for making sure that women didn't die when they gave birth to children. So Paul writes to Timothy and said, if a woman is right with God, she is saved through childbirth. They, she doesn't need the goddess to protect her because she has a relationship with God. She doesn't get saved like I go to heaven through bearing children. No, no, she's saved through childbirth. Why does he write that to Timothy? Because they're having trouble getting women to convert to Christianity because they're all afraid they're going to die during childbirth. As a fa matter of fact, when women were pregnant and about ready to give birth, they would travel to Ephesus to have their ch child there so that the goddess would protect them during childbirth. And Paul says, you don't need to worry about that. Women are preserved through childbirth through faith in Jesus. Stan. That's just a little taste of Timothy. And there's a bunch more that you might like. If you have a woman next to you, put your hand on her shoulder appropriately. You have to say that, we're in California. And let's just pray right now for our women. Lord, we just release right now. We break the power of the curse over our women that reduced them, that, that said, you can't live your dreams. You have to live a man's dreams. And Lord, we just break that over them. And Lord, in the church, Lord, we pray that women would be more powerful in the church than out of the church. And Lord, we break the power of, this, of that Spock-like Vulcan spirit that has invaded the church because we have no women bringing life and emotion and drama. I'm talking about good drama, right? And Lord, we release them right now in Jesus' name to be leaders and teachers and to, and to be prophetesses and, and to judges, I don't know, queens, whatever. Lord, we just release them right now to fly, fly, fly. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. Be sure to visit Bethel.tv for other exciting new content from Bethel Church.